Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer. I'm joined in the studio today by Pastor Ross Anderson again, Pastor Eric Sidrud, and today we're starting our five-week series on the book of First Peter, and we're calling the series Culture Wars. And Ross, help us to understand why we picked a title like that for this series, Why Culture Wars? Well, the fact is, I mean, there's always been an opposition, and there always will be an opposition between people whose identity is rooted in Jesus and the people of God versus the culture around us, the Bible calls the world, the world system. And so, you know, sometimes I guess when a, a nation or a community is more Christian-ish, then the then the opposition is maybe minimized. Maybe that's the been, the way it has been in America for many years. But um, but the opposition is still there. And I think in our own country, we're seeing more and more how acute that is becoming. Um, and, and recently, in the last probably just 10 or 15 years, there's been some real dramatic changes that have brought that to the surface. Yeah, we're going to share some of those st- statistics in just a second here. But Eric, wait a second. I thought America is a Christian culture. Right? Aren't we a Christian culture? Isn't America God's nation? Right? Isn't this the nation where we've got Christians and we're different from everybody else? Well, I mean, I think that that's a definitely controversial topic. Um, and if you're asking for my opinion, I'd say that certainly, yes, America has been used by God and blessed by God, and and it, you know, some people would say it's the church nation that's been sent out to the world. And certainly, there's been a lot of churches and funds come from America, but at the same time, it's questionable about, you know, exactly what did they believe when they first founded the country, mm-hmm. and what kind of Christianity was it, and and certainly, um, even even now, I mean, our, 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 our leaders, even though they swear by the Bible mm-hmm. when they take their oaths, do they really get into it and read it? Um, some of the prayers and the religious people that they have as their advisors uh, wouldn't necessarily be people that I would be learning from as well. And so is American America a Christian nation? Um, I, don't, I don't think so anymore. If we look at the statistics, I mean, things have changed. Yeah, let's look at some of those stats. And you can find, if you want to look at these with us, Barna.com, this is where we're getting this. They, uh, they talked about the state of the church. And in one article, uh, one of the images is describing how Americans relate to Christianity, and they're showing that that's changing over the last 20 years. So practicing Christians, for example, let's see if I can see these statistics. In 2009, um, 50% of the respondents, and this this poll went out to 100,000, so that's a pretty decent sample size, 50% of respondents said that they were practicing Christians back in 2009. In, in that same year, uh, 30% considered themselves to be non-practicing Christian, and then 20% considered themselves to be non-Christian. Okay, so 50% to the good, right? That's good. Half of America in 09, according to this poll, said that they were practicing practicing Christian, went to church on a fairly regular basis, that sort of thing. Now, fast forward to 2012. 2012, according to this poll, is when things really started to change. I've got some ideas about why, why that might be. But in 2012, things started to change, and all of a sudden, if you're looking at the graph, the, the lines flip. And now, after 2012, ever since, and it's, it's kind of gotten worse since 2012, now to the point where in 2020, we have uh, 
of respondents said that they were non-practicing Christians, right? So that's the new highest amount is 43% said they're non-practicing Christians. The next highest person, this is crazy to me, it's the practicing Christians is still, is not even second on the list. Second on the list is people who say that they're non-Christian, atheists or agnostics. 32% of America in 2020, according to this poll, 32% said that they're not a practicing Christian. And then only, what is that number? Only 25%. So it, it went from 50% of respondents in, what was it, 2009, said they're practicing Christians. That was cut in half by 2020, just over 10 years. 25% said that. And, I, you know, we're, we pastor a church, and I don't know, we're in Utah, so it's a little different. Utah's just a little bit of an anomaly, but I still think we've noticed, I think we've noticed at Alpine just the, the shift. There's a demographic, there's certainly a demographic shift that's been happening, and I would attribute it to a culture war. I think we're, the church is always at war with the secular culture in a sense. We don't mean anything militant about that. We're just saying that there's this clash between these values of the church and the values of the secular world. And I think, in my opinion, I think the enemy is winning. I think he is winning. I think the numbers are changing. And I think a big part of it, we, we, we we're not going to get into this in great detail today, but I think a big part of that is is just the how Satan, how the enemy is leveraging social media to get people to uh, to promote their own opinions. You know, their algorithms get it, basically are making you God, right? I mean, Eric, you're the youngest guy in the room here. Maybe you can explain how you know the Facebook's algorithms feed up and serve up content to you. Are they serving up just the the content that they feel like is the most helpful for you, or or what? No, no, yeah, it seems like they're gonna give you the content that is going to be most like, you know, every other video that you've watched. And so the more and more you look up a piece of content, you know, let's say on the political side, right? If you if you watch something on a certain political side, it seems like it will continue to feed you more and more and more of that to to polarize you. I think these algorithms are meant and I don't even know if that's necessarily what's behind their thought process. It's just more they want to give you what spikes those dopamine levels in your brain, the things that make you excited, the things that um, that pique your interest. They're going to keep you giving, giving you more and more and more and more of it so that you'll keep watching and watching, and then you'll watch their ads that pop up on mm -hmm. those videos, and they've, they've got us in their clutches. Yeah, so what they're doing is they're saying, okay, this is what you believe. Okay, we'll feed you more of what you believe. This is your opinion. Okay, we'll give you more of your opinion so that you will keep hitting on it and, and our we'll make more money through our advertisers. That's just how their algorithms work. And I think a lot of people don't realize this. And what it's doing then is it's, is it's, it's if you think about our definition of sin, sin is trusting and acting on your own opinions and feelings rather than trusting and acting on God's truth, what it's doing is it's literally it's serving up your own opinions and feelings. It's maximizing, it's reinforcing your own opinions and feelings. And so if everyone's opinions and feelings were right, social media would be wonderful because it would be reinforcing all the right stuff. But it's not, but nobody, the Bible says, everyone is wrong. We're not all right. We're actually all wrong. There's something at root that's selfish and wrong about us and how we view the world. And yet social media, and again, I'm not trying to blame it all on social media. It's, it's just, that's just the, the current tool 
that I believe the enemy is maximizing to draw us away from pursuing God. Right? That's my opinion. That's why they need to get back to church. That's why the, the study has shown yeah. that they need to get back to church so people can challenge them, so people can, you know, iron sharpens iron, all of that type of stuff. Yeah, let me, let me share a stat on that. Weekly church attendance in 09 was 48% of respondents said that they went to church weekly, which personally I believe that was probably a little bit inflated because I don't, I, I, I don't, even at our own church, how many people actually go to church weekly? There's just a lot of hit or miss. I think even good, solid believers don't necessarily all, always go to church weekly, but whatever. Okay, we'll say that's fine. But what's happened is in 2020 then, that number dropped down to 29%. So in just over 10, a decade, it went from 48% to 29%. That's crazy. Church attendance. And then Bar- Barna did one more thing. They, they looked at weekly church attendance by generation, because some people might say, well, look, the, the older generation still, they all still go to church, and the boomers probably all still go to church. Maybe it's the, the Gen X that has the problem, or the millennials that have the problem. Actually, according to their statistic, every single age group has gone down. The elders went down from, from let's go from 2012 to, tw- to 2020. In eight years, they went from 53% to 37%. Those are the elders, the elder generation. I think that was like 65 and above. And then the Gen Xers, or the baby boomers, went from 44% in 2012 to 32%. So even that was a 12% drop. And then the, uh, the what were the next? Gen X, that's my generation. The Gen X went from 41% in 2012 to 29% in 2020. And, and even the millennials. Eric, are you a millennial? I think you might be. Yeah. Yep. Even your even your generation, even you haven't even helped your own generation, Eric. I can't believe it. You know, even your own generation has gone from thirty six percent to twenty five percent. Actually, I think that that was probably the the best the the least amount of decrease of all the. Maybe there's a little bit of a bright ray of of sunlight in those statistics that at least our millennials are saying, no, we need to go to church, or at least. Fewer of them are saying we need to stop going to church. Well, the millennials that that 2012, they were all in youth group at the (laughs) time, so they probably didn't necessarily have the same choice they have now. I think it's interesting. You look at these statistics. I think the numbers, like you said, Brian, are probably overinflated in terms because it's a survey that's based on Mm self-reporting, and there's a halo effect, and that says I want to be seen by the survey takers as being good or being worth worthy or meritorious. What I think this shows also is that the halo effect is no longer as as strong as it was. Oh. In other words, it doesn't matter to people as much as it did then to be seen as a churchgoer. Wow. And I think that's part of the culture clash. That's true. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's a I think there's just a whole different way that people think people um, signal their values these days. Uh, than than how it was maybe a generation or two ago. Okay, so all of that is is some context for why we're calling this series Culture Wars because we're we're going to study for the next five weeks. We're going to study the five chapter book of First Peter in your Bible. So again, we want to encourage everyone to maybe read First Peter as you listen to these podcasts throughout these weeks. But probably my biggest encouragement to listeners, especially to parents out there, is have conversations with your teens and maybe even with your kids. If you have kids, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, start reading them into some of these concepts that we're going to be talking about in this series because 
Um, I think we need to try to reverse these trends, and we need to. I think we one of the ways that we fight the the enemy's tactics is through discipling, right? So parents, it's your job to disciple your kids. Don't just bring your kids to kids church and drop them off and go to the service. Uh, if you have teenagers, don't just drop them off at youth group and think that that's going to somehow solve all their problems and get them to think biblically, right? Have a biblical worldview. Um, I think the most important thing that you can do, parents, is to be having conversations, discipling your kids. Is kind of the perfect model for this was Jesus, right? He walked with his twelve disciples, and he just talked with them as he walked with them. It's like what Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy. He said, "All these things I've taught you." He says, "He said." Teach them to your kids when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're awake. So basically, he was covering all of his bases. And I think so from the time of Moses, I think we see the importance of discipling. Because the last thing we want to do is just rail on some of these cultural things that we're facing right now. But that doesn't, listening to a podcast isn't going to really change anyone's world. I think what's going to change someone's, your kids' parents, is that you're having these conversations and helping them become aware, helping them hear what your values are, what God's values are through his word, so that when they're being fed all these lies and opinions and half-truths, they're, they're wise to the enemy's schemes. And they know, they know what God's word has to say, because the clash, the culture war, is the war between God's God's view, God's word, what we would call a biblical worldview, and then what everyone is being sucked into in our culture, which is a secular worldview. So maybe even before we get into First Peter, it might be helpful to, to, to define a biblical worldview, because for some listeners, they might say, I don't even know what that means. What, what would you, how would you say, how would you define a biblical worldview? Well, first of all, what's a worldview? The worldview is, is the way that I make sense out of reality, it's a sum total of, of what I think is real, and it starts with what I think is the nature of what's, what's beyond humanity, the nature of humanity, and the nature of the world that we live in, and all of that is going to be defined by somebody. Everybody has an idea about who they are, what the world is like, and whether there's something else beyond us, and you can, that's either going to be, be defined by the culture around us, by other alternative voices, or, or it's going to be defined by what the Bible says. There is a God. We're people, human beings are made in His image, made, but they're fallen um, and need redemption. And the world that we live in as a whole is, veers away from God, but one day will be restored. Okay, so left to our own devices, by default, how do you think our kids will go? Will they, will they default to a biblical worldview, to God's values, or will they default to a, to a secular worldview, the world's values? Well, with, with, with all of the influence that the world has, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the Bible says, um, it's, it's, a pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty big opponent, a pretty big enemy um, that we have to face. And so those of us with a biblical worldview know that the Bible says that we need to be on guard, we need to be prepared, we've got to um, stay ready for action, we've got to teach, we've got to train, we need to go and make disciples. It's, we're, we're on the offensive, we're, we're going and taking this to the world because, because there's another enemy that is already in charge of the world, you know, and we're just, we're trying to... Um, further the kingdom of God in a fallen world. And so, yes, uh, they're going to, 
our kids um, are be, being pulled in every which way direction. And I actually just had this conversation with, with my oldest son. Mm. So he works and then he goes to school and then he plays football and all, and he's got friend time and all this stuff. And we actually sat down, uh, we watched a pursue God video and it was on budgeting our time as a family, mm. something you guys recently did. And we sat down and we put all of his time down on a piece of paper, like all the time he's spending at work, spending at school, spending sleeping, spending in the Bible. And it was like the Bible was very minimal and compared to work. And, and he's like, so so it, it all came up because he was questioning me, why are you limiting me to three days a week of work? And it's like, well, because you've got so many people speaking into your life. You've got work friends speaking into your life. You've got school speaking into your life. I want time with you. You know, I want time with you for, you know, just to build a relationship, but also to um, share truths with you that is my job to do, you know, because if, if, if those are the only voices speaking in your life, those are the loudest. And so we've got to be intentional about spending time together and in God's Word, talking about it, having a conversation, just like we're doing today, you know, like we, we didn't, we didn't, you know, pre-practice this conversation. This is all just us hopefully modeling to people mm-hmm. how to have a conversation around a, a topic, a biblical topic. Yeah, and I know it's hard with our kids, especially with teens, because if, if you don't make it a habit when the kids are young, I, I still remember my own kids would roll their eyes when I said, we're going to sit down and have, we used to call it family talk, you know, family time. We're going to have some family time. They used to kind of roll their eyes because they thought mom and dad were going to start preaching at them or, you know, dad's a pastor, mom's a counselor. So it's like the perfect storm for our poor kids, you know, but what what we noticed is when we powered through that and when we acknowledged that they were rolling their eyes and we weren't sure that they really wanted to be there, we, we just said, look, we're the parents. This is our job. When you're parents, when you guys are the parents, you can you can ruin our grandkids. It's, that's your prerogative if you want to, but we're going to do our job. We're going to do what God's word says to do, which is to help you to understand God's perspective on stuff. But what we, what we really, for all you parents out there, I would really encourage you to talk more than, or listen more than you talk with your kids, but use the tools like, like what we have for today's lesson, use these tools to help give some structure to the conversation and, and start moving it into the right direction. So your kids can start owning for themselves some of these biblical worldviews that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, and kids are important, of course. It's a great responsibility parents have. But even as adults, once a person comes to faith in Christ doesn't mean that the culture clash ends or that we're not subject to those influences anymore. I think a lot of Christians are just default to the influence of the world. They might read their Bible every day, devotionally or whatever, but they're not really thinking through like, what does the Scripture actually have to say about this issue, that question, this value, whatever? You see a lot of Christians who have just uncritically adopted whatever the world's putting down. Yeah, and I think that's because that's the default. I think the, the world is so—the enemy is so clever about how he subtly is trying to get us to buy into worldly values. You know, what? one of the things I notice when I watch you know shows on Netflix is they're, they're mocking their—, their they're subtly mocking like traditional Christian values, like um, uh, waiting until you're married to have sex. They they portray it in such a way that nobody would actually ever do that. That's ridiculous. Nobody would actually ever do that. 
And so it's these little things that really it it gets my hackles up because I get so frustrated when I watch this, thinking these this is more insidious. It's like boiling the frog. This is more insidious than than someone just coming out and saying Christians are morons. They're not they're not saying it like that. They're they're making it look like if our young if our if our kids, if our sons and daughters make biblical choices about sexual purity, they're making it look like they're the they're just the oddballs. And man, mm-hmm. that, but yet we know from statistics all these the the way of the world the the culture that the where it's going it's destroying our marriages it's destroying people's ability to even enjoy sex right but people don't realize that until the enemy's already won that battle in their mind and so really the point for today's lesson and for this whole series is as we look at the book of first peter we're going to we're going to try to contextualize what he's talking about 2000 years ago and we're going to see that today that there's some overlap because Peter was writing to a church in the context of persecution. And we'll talk about the difference between the persecution that they saw 2,000 years ago and, and what, what we might be experiencing in our culture war today. I wouldn't even use the word persecution. But I, I do think there's a lot of overlap when it comes to some of these concepts. And so in today's lesson, what we're going to talk about, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to lift out of here five observations that we've made um, five statements that Peter is making about trials for Christians, five truths about trials that I think were true 2,000 years ago, and they're still true today. But before we get to that list, Eric, it might be great for us to just start by reading the first five verses in the book of First Peter chapter 1. All right, starting in verse 1, this letter is from Peter. That must be why they... They titled it First Peter. Good. First Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And I think uh, I'll just start out. I'd just say, you know, he, we're going to get to the rest of the verses in, in our lesson today, that, but we read one through five because it's a really good opener um, for, for hope, why Peter is sharing what he's sharing. And, and for me, my perspective on this, it being a you know, a Calvinist, which is... Uh, oh, the, here we go. Know, there's a culture war inside the church <laughs> over over different issues of theology, but, you know, what that just really means is, is I just believe that God's in control of a lot more things than we can understand. And mm-hmm. in the uh, in this Trinity series that we just did, that's how we, we, try, we, we explained God as, as a mystery. The Bible says it. We don't fully understand how it works about how God's triune, but we trust it. And in the same way, how does God save people? How does he work things out in the world? All this type of stuff. Like sometimes it says that he's, he's in a lot of control. He's sovereign, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He chose us and he's keeping, 
keeping us and all these things. And so um, with that, um, it's, it's a mystery on how it works, but I'm going to trust. And, and what Peter's writing is he's saying, look, God has chosen you and, and he's given you his spirit and he's sanctified you and he's forgiven you and justified you. And, and so with that, um, take this, this hope, take this, take your faith of, of your, that's going to be protected by God's power and realize that this life is going to be, bring trial and pain, and there is going to be persecution, and there are going to be things. The system, the world system, is going to set itself up against you. Mm-hmm. But, but take heart, you know, Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. In this world, you're going to have troubles. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world, right? And so I also love what it says there in, in, in verse 5, is that he's protecting you by his power, um, until the, till the last day, right? Until everything's being ready to reveal. And as you're talking about people leaving the church, um, you know, it brings up a huge question. Why, why were people leaving the church in, over the last, you know, couple centuries? And, you know, I would say, well, maybe their faith wasn't there at all. Maybe they didn't have a true faith, right? There were people that that went out from us in 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 first john chapter 2 it says they went out from us because they were not of us and so maybe in the great divide or in the great mix-up or or with covid and everything that's gone on in our world um, there's a big shake-up happening of uh, who is really in the faith who is god keeping and and you know that's that's kind of my perspective but along with that it's it's more more so he's getting to the idea of okay there's going to be trials so but don't worry i'm in control of all this and it's mm-hmm. going to bring good so, yeah that's yeah. good mm-hmm. well yeah and i i appreciate that's yeah he he starts right right away i mean this whole book is about persecution ross will share a little bit more about that in a second but it's written in the context of some persecution that the early church was enduring and yet he writes as an optimist he writes I mean, there's so much encouragement to be taken for this, and it's good for me to remember because sometimes I can watch the news or I can see what's going on or I can look at these trends or these stats, and I could say, "All right, we've lost. That like the church is going to be is going to be over. It's going to be done." But yet, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against mm-hmm. His church, and so we know how the the story ends. Right, the story ends with with God on the throne, and the story ends with the church victorious. But we are in this, you know, we, we read in First Peter that, you know, this first truth about trials, and it's that they're inevitable. The, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say that when you become a Christian, everything's just going to be, you know, gumdrops and lollipops from now on. Yeah, so, it, you know, what Eric read leads us up to verse 6. And if we could look at verse 6 for a minute, that, that kind of lays out what's next. He says... Um, so, wait, I can't read that very well, so... <laughs> he says, I'll read it for you. So, be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Yeah, he says, look, you're going to have trials. And in the context of First Peter, that's because of our identity compared to the world around us. So it's interesting, in verse 1, he addresses these... First of all, he's, he's writing to... A number of churches, we don't know how many churches or individuals, but he gives us the regions where they live. Those are all in what's now Turkey, and they were all provinces of the Roman Empire. And the time that 
that Peter's writing this, it's just at the place in the, uh, the best we can tell, it's in the rule of Nero, just as persecution is starting to ramp up. And so th- th- there's maybe hints, there's maybe low-grade persecution, it's about to go full on, and Peter himself lost his life in that persecution as a martyr of, of the Christian faith. And so he's writing to them. It's interesting, though, in verse 1, he calls them temporary residents, or they're foreigners. They're, they're strangers and aliens in the old language. Um, he says, you know, you don't really belong in this world. He's not saying because they had somehow moved from some place else to live in Turkey. No, he's saying that, that your identity as a cho- one who's chosen by God creates this fundamental disjunction that you don't belong to this world. You're not at home here. You're not a citizen of this world. And so the result is there's going to be trials. Now, every person in the planet's going to go through trials because we live in a busted-up world. But he's specifically talking about hardships and adversity that come because of our identity in Christ is different from, and it, it means that we don't live for the values and beliefs of the culture around us, and that creates some level, at least, of opposition. Yeah, so for so again, let's just be clear for listeners. Some listeners might have some clear examples in mind already about some of the persecution. Again, I hesitate to even use that word. Let's call it a trial, because it certainly isn't persecution like like they experienced in the history of the church, right? Martyrdom and those sorts of things, and the, and the persecution, the martyrdom that Peter would experience and that Paul experienced, and, and that probably many of the readers 2,000 years ago would, would be experiencing just maybe months or years after this, mm-hmm. right? But in our, cul- in our culture, I feel like we could be getting there. I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime or not, but Eric, it might be in your lifetime. I feel like we're getting to a point where there's... This culture is turning, and, and it's turning against, in large part, it's turning against God and against Christian values and norms. Yeah, that's why I go to the gym so much, because I'm just, I'm preparing, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for someone to knock at my door and just want to <laughs> take me and my family, and I'm just going to, you know, show them the guns. <laughs> and you're but, not talking about the, the guns you purchase, you're no, talking about the ones uh, you've been working on yes, in the gym. Yes, exactly, yeah, I mean, I... I Things outside of my body, I, I can't get to those all the time, but I can have these hands prepared. He's, it says he he trains my hands for battle. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, I was just thinking as Ross was talking about this, this idea that we're foreigners, we're aliens, sojourners in a foreign land. All I could think about for some weird reason was E.T., you know? You remember that movie, E.T., and he... He came down here and and he was he was lost. He was a loner. They thought he was weird. They kept wanting to get him, and uh, <laughs> just eventually, uh, he had a hard time. <laughs> that, that he had a hard time in that movie, and and it just really is funny. But at the same time, I think about it when you're the minority. You know, when when as we look at it, you know, the Christians have always been the mi- minority in the world, and they're certainly starting to be the minority in America again, and so. As that happens, um, and the the postmodern, the post-Christian secular world kind of takes over, we're going to be the weirdos again, and and life's going to be hard, and mm-hmm. and they're going to try to stamp out our message, mm-hmm. and so certainly there are lots of trials to face if you're going to stand on the faith, right? And there's just so many things in the Bible that says stand, right? Stand, endure remain, mm-hmm. abide, and, and if we're going to be 
sharing the message and making disciples, certainly that's going to bother the people that don't like us. Well, because that's really the second thing that Peter says then is, number one, trials are inevitable. But number two, when we look at verse seven, we see that trials test your faith, right? He says in verse seven, these trials will show that your faith is genuine, or I guess it will show, like you were saying earlier, Eric, that maybe your faith wasn't genuine after all, hmm. if you bailed so quickly, right? It, he says, it is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And what, what jumps out at me in that verse is, there's a there's an assumption there. Peter knows this, and we as Christians know this. Someday, Jesus Christ is going to be revealed as Lord to the whole world. What should be happening now is that he's already been revealed as Lord to Christians. That should, And so then that should impact the way we interact with our world. That should impact what we do on our Sundays. And again, it's not just it's about going to church, but that's one of those indicators that that God's word and God's people matter to you, right? Yeah, and we'll talk about that more a little bit in a, in a later point. But the, the thing is, he's saying, you know, you're going to be tested. And what, I, what, I'm, what stood out to me here, I mean, understanding testing, like he uses this example of high, high heat that purifies gold. It allows, the, it allows the imperfection, impurities of gold to be identified and to be removed. So it's a positive thing. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to get your roots down deep. I, I thought it was really interesting when I was reading through this that he he doesn't say um, he doesn't say if your faith remains strong mm. through many trials. He says when your faith remains strong mm. through many tri- many trials. So you know if if you belong to to God, you genuinely belong to Him. He, there there is we have all the resources that we need in Christ in trusting Jesus to succeed in this. So we can have, I think, another. that's another reason to have a positive outlook on this, mm-hmm. that he's given us everything we need to be able to stand firm. Well, yeah, and we saw that in, in what was it, verse 2, right? God the Father knew you and chose you, and his Spirit has made you holy. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit is in us, and we talked about this in our last series on the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit is in us, moving us. I told my, I used to tell my kids this all the time when they were in high school, when they would come home, and it's just, you know, it's just hard in today's world battling the the prevailing culture and i think it's especially hard in, in junior high and high school and i said you don't have to be like everyone else and the reason is because the holy spirit is in you which is what P- peter says here making you holy which means making you set apart mm-hmm. set apart from whom set apart from the world set apart from the way the destructive way of the world eric you got nothing on that do you well i Again, I was just thinking of other funny movies, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've had your one movie reference, so. yeah. and you used my movie. It's ET is my generation. Were you even alive when ET came out? I think I think I grew up. Yeah, I grew up uh, watching that movie. It's funny though. Actually, just last night I made my whole family uh, sit down and watch the old Ten Commandments, nineteen fifty six. Wow, Charlton Heston. Yeah, and it's it's actually interesting because like I that my kids asked me, is this a Christian movie? Uh, because of, you know, there's like lots of women and showing lots of skin and mm. stuff like that in the movie. And I'm just like, well, not necessarily. I think this was kind of a big Hollywood hit, but the culture back then in 1956 was probably more ma- majority, you know, respect for 
the Bible and respect for Christianity. Would you say that? Would you guys maybe say that? I would say that there was always opposition, but the opposition was probably more underground and less of a majority, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was just interesting to uh, have my kids ask me that question because, you know, it's a four-hour-long movie and there's lots of <laughs> lots of skin and stuff going on in there. It's, it's really cool. It was ahead of, ahead of its time, though. But uh, certainly Moses faced lots of trials. Yeah. Well, and so the third thing that we learned, then the third truth about trials from the book of First Peter is that they take preparation. So let's camp out, out on this for a little bit because it, he says in verse 13, in the context of all this, he says so or therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you should always ask, what's, what's it? it? Therefore. Therefore. Good. So therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. I like this because now he's getting practical. We can get a little practical now at this point. He says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So he's talking about this, this thing that's going to happen someday, right? That Jesus Christ will be revealed to the whole world. He had already said that earlier. But what he's, in the first part of that verse, he gives us two really practical things we could do in the meantime. Yeah, he says you, do, you need to prepare. In light of this reality, <clears throat> in light of the fact that there's a culture clash, what do we do? Prepare your minds and exercise self-control. Prepare, I would say prepare your will would be the way I would uh, put those two together. Hmm. So how do you, Eric, as a young man in today's culture, or, or let, let me say it like this, how would you tell your son, your 17-year-old son, to prepare his mind to be able to fight this battle, this culture war that he's going to face more than any of us have? Well, that I mean, it just reminds me of uh, a, a verse in Psalm 119. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Mm -hmm. Well, first and foremost, and so I think that if we have these words of hope, because that's in those verses, right? If we if we cling on to this 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 hope that we have, it says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation. Um, if we hold on to these words of hope, they will be brought to our remembrance when we need them in times of trial, when we need them in times of temptation, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job, is to bring to remembrance all that I've said to you is what Jesus said. And mm. so um, preparation is really the spiritual disciplines of Christianity to me, I, I think, right? And then being proactive, uh, uh, thinking ahead and looking out at the culture and saying, what kind of conversations do I need to have with my son, with my kids with my family um, are trying to be on guard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Paul says in Romans 12, right? He says, um, per, he's, he's, he talks about um, not conforming to the world, but instead of conforming to the world, he says, renew your mind, mm -hmm. which, so, and it's, it seems like that's what Peter's saying here is the opposite, of, the, the opposite of just falling for what the world is offering you, the opposite of that is preparing your mind, is winning the battle in your mind, it's renewing your mind. One of the things I'm most proud of, of my two kids of is that they both read the Word for themselves. And they did this back in high school, maybe even in junior high, and I'm so grateful that they, that they established that discipline and they still have that discipline in their lives because I believe God's Word is powerful. I think that's one of the best things parents can teach their kids to do, is to take ownership of their own of their own relationship with God and with God's Word. 
Um, because look, on our phones, we've got all these messages. I mean, our kids have got all these messages bombarding their minds. I mean, I don't know how many minutes a day. Look at your look at your the app on your phone and see. I think there's apps for that, right? Mm-hmm. That can yeah. show you how long you've been on your phone. And just compare that. You know, you talked about doing a time audit with your son, Eric. Com- just compare that with how often you're in the Word, or just listening to worship in the car, or you know, whatever. I mean, I don't mean to be a Oh, super old-fashioned about this. I don't think people, our kids need to be in the Word for three hours a day, but I do think it's so valuable for them to to value God's Word and the discipline of reading it for themselves every day, not just not just hearing it at church every once in a while in a sermon. Yeah, and I think the idea of preparing your minds for action starts with the Word, but it doesn't end there. Because I think the next step is to learn how to think it through, to learn how to say, here's what I, I read this in Scripture, and this Scripture is shaping my worldview. Well, what does that say about what's actually happening in the culture? And to connect the dots, to say, okay, is this idea that I'm being presented with, or this value that I'm being presented with in entertainment or on social media or wherever it is, does, how does this how does this match up to what God has said? So doing the mental work, the the mental muscle of doing some really evaluation, putting my mind to work. Here's the here's another problem I think that along with social media, but it goes back farther. It goes back maybe most of my lifetime in our culture. Our culture has been become an entertainment and amusement oriented culture. Mm-hmm. The word amusement, literally in the original language, a muse means no thinking, hmm. um, and so that'll preach. Basically, yeah, that's good. basically, using that we we discipled to turn our minds off and just be passive receptors uh, for the sake of entertainment. And I think preparing your mind for action, part of that is saying, how am I going to think in ways that are critical, that actually do some work to evaluate what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing and against the Word of God. Yeah, it's, it, well, it's interesting because the evangelist Charles Finney, um, and this was, I think, in the 1800s, he, he wrote a lot about amusement, and there's a whole chapter in one of his books where he talks about the evil of amusement, and I always thought, the book was a great book, but I always thought, this is kind of a weird chapter, and he's talking about like going out on frivolous carriage rides or something like that, and I remember just kind of saying, oh, that's, that's definitely old-fashioned, and that's dumb, but, but I do think there's something there that our, 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 even my generation, but we're all just so used to being entertained. We're all so used mm-hmm. to just turning off our minds and our discernment in a lot of cases, and then pretty soon it becomes just a normal part of our culture and our fam not just the society around us but culture you can have a you can have a personal culture that's jacked up you can have a family culture or a marriage culture that's jacked up because it's informed more by the values of the world that you're just taking in all the time and not even ever thinking about yeah yeah and i was going to say you know one of the th- he was ross was talking about you know thinking about things critically and it just again reminds me that you know, Paul tells us that we have the mind of Christ, you know, thinking about preparing our minds. We have this accessible uh, knowledge mind coming through the Word, through the Spirit, that we can think critically and think through all of these things that we're doing. When, when we get sent videos on an algorithm, we can say, look, uh, something's going on here. They're trying to just continuously feed. Maybe I need to do some work and and 
study the other points of views, right? Maybe I need to go, uh, you know, put, put my phone down and have real conversations with real people instead of being stuck in virtual world on, on Facebook and getting angry at what, what people post, right? I need to use my mind and think critically. Mm. That's good. Mm -hmm. Now, Ross, you say in this verse, in verse 13, the first half of that is prepare your minds. And, and you say that exercising self-control is like preparing your will. Yeah, and I don't mean like, so I'm old, so I've prepared my will. <laughs> I don't mean it in that sense, right? I mean, I mean, this, the idea of the exercise of self-discipline is the will is the capacity to make decisions. Mm. And so how am I making decisions? Am I just going with the flow? Or am I making decisions on the basis of what's right? And what's, you know, because it's not easy to make a decision that goes against the flow. It takes some will effort, willpower, you might mm. say. That's, you know, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, as we said, that's empowered by God. But I still have to make a choice. And so, so what am I going to do so that when hard times do come, when opposition does come, that I'm prepared and I'm not just going to fold? You know, it takes a tough choice to stand for Jesus mm. against being shamed or ridiculed, mocked or opposed or losing a job or whatever mm. it might be. So how, have I, how do I train my faculty of decision-making to say that I'm going to be able to do the hard thing rather than just give in to, to the flow of the culture? Yeah, and, and actually that I think that preparing your will and, and exercising self-control fits into something we haven't even talked about yet, but we've been talking about trial in the context of shaming and, and that sort of thing. But really one of the trials, especially that our young people face, is the trial of, uh, that is a temptation to sexual sin, is a temptation to you know, pornography and those, those things that are so readily available. That is certainly part of the culture war right now, is the culture has just made uh, sexuality just whatever you want it to be. You, just, you could just do whatever you want to do, you could be whoever you want to be. And that's a, a that's kind of at the center of the culture war I think right now. And I and that's where this self control thing man really jumps in. Exercise self control when you're when you're flipping through Instagram or Snapchat and these images are coming up. Young men listening to this, exercise self control. You can be self controlled. You can win the battle at the at the level of your will because again, as we've said, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, so you don't have to lose that war. Right, you don't have to. You don't have to be like everybody else in your culture. You know, my my son's eighteen and just a little younger than yours, Eric. And he, he, uh, he's he said, I don't think he knows anyone, any friend of his that doesn't have a porn problem. Hmm. And he's got good friends. They're good kids. They're not. They're not like really bad kids. They're good for the most part. They're good kids. And every kid he knows has a porn problem. And some of them recognize it as a problem, which is good. A lot of them don't even recognize it as a problem. It's just what everybody does. But some of them at least recognize that it's a problem and want to do something about it. But to me, that's just, look, the culture is winning out. It's just, it's saying, look, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's no consequences. And these kids, men and women, young men and young, young women, are going to find out later on when they're unable to enjoy a regular sexual relationship with their spouse, they're going to... They're going to have to do some hard work, I think, to redeem, to redeem the time. Yeah, I mean, and as you bring up, you know, maybe sexual sin, I would say, too, as the culture, you know, continues to twist uh, the gift of God, you know, sex that's meant between a man and woman in marriage, right, for life, 
Um, there's going to be possibly the trials for the church in the future about because of our, you know, quote unquote, old fashioned views about sexuality and, and, and the views that, you know, maybe we're, we're mean or, or we're rude or we need to give in and, and be uh, more inclusive where it's, we love everyone and we want everybody to come and hear the truth. But at the same time, we do, as we said, we've got to stand on certain biblical things that are important. And some of them may, may seem old fashioned to the, the church or to the, to the culture, but yet, um, have no place in this world. And so again, we're going to feel like aliens and foreigners when we stand on things that the world doesn't agree with. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's recap what we've learned from Peter so far about trials. Number one, trials are inevitable. Number two, trials test your faith. Number three, trials take preparation. Again, all these things were true 2000 years ago. They're still true today, even though our trials might take different forms. Number four, trials lure you backward into your old way of living, right? This is good that he says this in verse 14. So you, he says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. There's something to me, I've noticed this with people that I've tried to influence over the years. It's very sad to me. There's just something about trials that can really, it's this kind of related to testing your faith. There's something about trials that sometimes I've noticed people who have been following God say, it's not worth it, forget about it, and they just go right back into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is such a hard time. I can rationalize that I'm justified to just go be selfish or to slip up or cross that line. You know, and I think in the ish, in the context of clash of cultures too, though, there's the, there's the temptation to be lured back because that's what the crowd is doing, you know, because the peer pressure or the ridicule or whatever it might be, then I, it's just a lot easier to, to just say, okay, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, and I think that one thing I remind a lot of people at church is that, that we are all saved sinners. We all come from a pretty... I mean, a pretty sinful background, right? And and we still struggle, as Paul says, like we still struggle in the flesh. And and when you know that verse actually reminds me of you know what what Paul talks about in First Corinthians chapter chapter six, verses nine and ten. He leads reads off this list of, you know, don't you know that these certain types of people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God? You know, mm-hmm. it talks about you know, uh, sexual sin. It talks about greedy people, drunkards, abusive people. It talks about all these different things. And, and he says, such were some of you, or some of you were once like this, mm-hmm. but you were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I really think that Peter, he starts out his letter with kind of the same thing. Remember that you were saved. Remember you were sanctified. You were cleansed, right? And so with this, there's going to be some trials happening in your life. Don't fall back. Don't shrink back. Don't be led back into your old ways of living because that is what's natural for a lot of us. And so when we took on this new spiritual nature, we still have this old nature still kind of gnawing at us, trying to to lure us back and to be swayed by the ways of the world. Remember, uh, we 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 once loved the world. You know that was that was that was all that we knew until we knew the Lord. So 
Yeah, and I think, you know, to go back to the example of pornography and sexual sin, I think I know with some of the, some of the guys that I've tried to help through that, they say, look, if when, once I've screwed up once, it almost, in that particular area, it's almost like I've already screwed up. I might as well really kind of enjoy this. And then they, it, it, it almost like builds up. And to those people, I want you to hear Peter's words in 1 Peter 1. Uh, we just read verse, uh, verse 14. In verse 15, he says, But now you must be holy mm-hmm. in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And then he says this in verse 17, and this will run us up to our last point about trials. He says, And remember that the Heavenly Father, this is, I think, what you were saying, Eric, the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. To me, I feel like that's like a Peter, like a father saying, it does matter. It does matter whether you pass the test. It does matter. You can be holy. You don't have to be a victim to to the sin that the that is that this culture is sucking the whole world into you don't have to be like that you don't have to lose this culture war you don't have to lose this battle and so i just want to encourage people who are listening who are who are maybe are actively struggling with sin right now you love jesus you feel terribly about it but you you're like i just don't think i can win read first peter turn to god he he can rescue you he, like it said so many times in chapter one, he is the one who makes you holy and you can have victory in whatever area that you're struggling in, in your life. And, and, and let's just end then on this last point, this last truth about trials. And, and this is good. This is, we're going to end on a positive note because Peter does. Trials are temporary. He says that at the end of verse 17, you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residence. In other words, this isn't your home. He call, At the beginning of the chapter, he calls us Christians foreigners. And now in verse 17, he's calling, he's calling Christians temporary residents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, this is how he ends the whole chapter. A few verses down, kind of tied together in this argument, he says, look, the life that we live in this world is like, it's like grass in the summer, and it's going to fade. You know, it might be green for a minute, and then it's going to get old and die. That's, that's the current life that <clears throat> the world offers, but he says, you know, but you've been born again to a new kind of life, a life that's permanent, this, this eternal life. And so he's telling us, you know, don't evaluate this temporary life without taking into consideration the permanent life, the bigger picture, that, that really what is eternal versus temporary. He says, he said it in verse 6, he said, you know, you're going to suffer trials, we said earlier, right? He says, for a little while. If this life is temporary, the trials of this life are temporary, we got to keep in that, that bigger eternal picture in view. Yeah, and I just, I'm going to cherry pick from 1 Peter chapter 5, mm-hmm. uh, because it really fits the verse in verse 10. It says, so after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Uh, so there's a hope that when we're going through these trials, uh, our faith uh, and joy should surpass understanding, right? We should have the hope knowing that we're going to be delivered from this. If it isn't in this lifetime, it will be for all eternity. And, and in light of eternity, you know, this however many years we get on earth is pretty short, and, and it is worth it. 
what Peter's saying. It is worth it to endure. It's it's worth it to uh, focus on Christ, stand for Him, and live in the hope that you've been born again. Yeah, and that's what he says in verse 23, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last mm. forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. In fact, I love what he says even a little earlier in verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. That's such a great phrase that if I've been searching this whole time for a a good description of the secular culture and the secular worldview, well, he gives us one right there. It's an empty life. It doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like it's empty at first. It's got so much that 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 draws you in and that tempts you, but it's empty. At the end of the day, it's empty. But for for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus is Lord. We're a part of his kingdom and his values. And, and, um, and so we can win this war, not, not on our own power or strength or even our own willpower, right? We can win this war because of what Jesus has done, that Jesus paid the ransom for us and he set, he set us free. We see these themes all over the place in chapter one. So I encourage people to go back and read chapter one and pick up on these themes about how Jesus sets us free because of what he did on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit is in us to empower us to live according to God's values instead of the world's values as we continue this culture war. So guys, thanks. This is a great conversation for today, and I'm excited about this whole series over these next few weeks as we continue to study the book of 1 Peter. And for those of you who want to do this with your family or your small group or one-on-one with a mentor, you can find all these resources at pursuegod.org forward slash one Peter. There's a small group video there. There's discussion questions. Uh, the full article. It's all right there for you, so I encourage you to check that out and use it in your world. And then we'll see everybody next week as we talk about 1 Peter chapter 2. Mm-hmm.